This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Greg Sands. He is the founder and managing partner at Costa Noa Ventures, a venture capital firm that has been around for uh, a decade or two. He was the original product manager at a little firm called Netscape, uh, working with Jim Clark and, and Mark Andreessen. Uh, not only was he the first product manager, he put together the business plan, and he came up with the name Netscape. And he is not just a technologist, but a venture investor and a very insightful person who sits really at the nexus of a, a number of fascinating aspects of business, finance, technology, go down the list. Uh, they're out in Palo Alto. He is an early seed investor. Um, I wouldn't even call it A stage or B, A round. He, he's earlier than that. Uh, they focus on a number of really interesting technologies and platforms. If you're remotely interested in anything having to do with angel or venture capital investing, if you're intrigued or fascinated, as I am, about technology and how it's going to develop and impact uh, the economy and society at large, then you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So with no further ado, my interview with Greg Sands of Costa Noa Ventures. My special guest today is Greg Sands. He is the founder and managing partner of Costa Noa Ventures. He was the first product manager at Netscape Communications, where he not only wrote the initial business plan, but coined the name Netscape. Greg Sands, welcome to Bloomberg. It's great to be here with you. So you're a founder and a managing partner at a venture capital firm. Is this the sort of career path you were expecting to take? Your background is not quite um, total VC, although I guess in hindsight we could say that. Well, it, it isn't what I saw myself doing as a kid. I grew up thinking I wanted to be the senator from the great state of Minnesota, and much to my surprise, Al Franken holds that job instead that's of me. That's funny. <laughs> so that's funny. I, I expected to be a fighter pilot or an astronaut, so we had very different goals. That's right. Absolutely. And so that evolved as I, uh, as I got into my career initially at a management consulting firm in Boston, made my way to business school in at, at Stanford, so in the in the heart of Silicon Valley, and then just started navigating my way through the software industry. So so from Minnesota to uh, Cambridge in in outside of Boston to Southern California, did you how did how did that transition go? I'm always surprised at how people find their way to California and it's Oh my God, it's beautiful. The geography is spectacular. The weather is great. It's hard to leave there, isn't it? Well, yes. And so you know, we're in we're, we're in Palo Alto in the in Northern California near near San Francisco. And I ended up having spent seven years in Boston and Cambridge, having the opportunity to head out there, and I didn't know what I was getting into. Mm -hmm. I literally told people, "Hey, I'm I'm going to Stanford. I'm going to the beach." And they said, it's not anywhere near the beach. Have That's you ever right. been there? And I said, no, but it sounds great. The weather, <laughs> but, everything is still spectacular but, out there. I, Boston's winters are not not easy winters. Well, they're easy when you spent the first 18 of them in Minnesota. <laughs> I guess it's all relative, isn't it? So so let's talk a little bit about um, what you were doing at, at uh, Sutter Hill. You started at a, a very storied, uh, I guess, the first venture capital firm, Sutter Hill goes back to the early 60s, doesn't it? Yeah, that's it? right. It goes back to the early 60s, and it's the longest-running venture capital firm on the East Coast. There were a couple of earlier firms, but that don't still exist. Now, and, don't aren't they also out in Palo Alto? Or yeah, they're I, also uh, in Palo Alto. I mean, exactly. they're the original, uh, am I misremembering, the original Sand Hill VC, or, or were they not? Yeah, not, not on Sand Hill, but you would think of them as basically the original West Coast mm -hmm. venture capital firm, and a, a, a storied firm. Uh, uh, you know, a great group of people, very high integrity, great values, performed exceptionally well. Incredible over a companies, long period Nvidia, of time. and just the list of of companies that they backed were astonishing. And you were there for more than a decade. What was that experience like? 
Well, I, I came in having been basically uh, GM of business unit most recently at Netscape. So mm -hmm. I had never been a professional investor. And I came in, there was a group of five partners or managing directors who'd all been there at least, you know, really 13 to 25 years. Mm -hmm. And so I got to learn the trade of venture capital. And so even in our at Coast to Know, we talk a lot about the old school craft mm -hmm. of venture capital and being a partner to entrepreneurs and being a company builder. And I really did get to learn that with an extraordinary group of people and feel really fortunate to have been able to do that. What were some of the companies you worked on when you were at uh, Sutter Hill? So Yoku, which is about the world's third largest video property, now owned by Alibaba, but went public on the New York wow. Stock Exchange and was uh, had a $5 billion market cap. I was going to say, that's a good exit to Alibaba. That's right. No, that's an excellent one. Uh, Quinn Street, which is a public company. It was a guy in 20 PowerPoint slides. That's a uh, performance marketing company. And one that I that I love but isn't very well known is a company called Merced Systems. It was a call center performance management Software, software company right? yeah i've heard of merced that's and we uh we are they still independent or are they no part they of were bought else? by nice systems okay. which is a billion dollar public software company and uh and one of the two founders there is working with us at coast to Noah, mark selko oh really that's really that's really interesting i recall you did something with feedburner was that at sutter hill or? yeah so back at sutter hill i was an investor at feedburner so uh, Brad Feld from Foundry Group and I right. uh, led around, and so I was a I was an observer on the board and worked with Dick Costello and team, and it was a terrific experience. One of the things that was very interesting about it is that uh, Fred Wilson came in a year later and said, "I turned it down at the last round, but now all of my friends in the publishing industry are using it, and I want in." He's a blogger. I've been blogging for a hundred years. When Google acquired FeedBurner, everybody I know is using FeedBurner as a way of shooting out their daily update to to this was this was back in the day when everybody was using blog feeds and not actually going to specific websites, but FeedBurner was a great property and that was a good exit, wasn't it? That was it? a good exit. And you know, one of the things that I think is most interesting is that the investors actually wanted to keep going. We felt like there was a bigger, broader opportunity uh, when we were when we were offered uh, Google uh, came and offered to buy the company. And Dick Costello, to his credit, he looked at us, and we put together basically a, effectively a competing offer that would provide some founder liquidity. But he looked at us and he said, we have, in fact, uh, won the war for the hearts and minds of bloggers, and we are deployed everywhere. But we haven't yet figured out how to monetize, for example, how to use to insert ads in the RSS feeds. And if we'd figured out monetization, I would press on the gas and go for it. But I don't think we've eliminated that risk in the business. And as a result, I recommend that we that, that we take this offer and we sell. And that's, I think, a great example of the partnership between great founders and leaders and great investors. And that Dick Costello has been involved in other tech startups, hasn't he? Yes. As it turns out, he, he ended up uh, leading Twitter, and he now has his own company and is a, is a, is a great friend and a, and a great leader. What does a product manager do in a tech startup? So product manager is really the person who connects market to technology. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, that person decides uh, what you're going to build and then works with the engineering team to make sure that uh, what you're delivering basically meets the requirements that you've mapped out. So it's a combination of making it work, making sure the features are as promised. Are you involved in the branding or marketing, or is that a different team? It's done differently at, at different times, but mainly mainly not. Mm -hmm. Mainly the there's a separate marketing organization, and the product management often does product marketing, so articulating the features and benefits and capabilities of that product, but not of the company as a whole. So you put together the first business plan, effectively, for Netscape. How, what was the thought process like behind it? It was clear that if this worked, it was going to be revolutionary, but how was the company ever going to make any money? It was a fascinating exercise. So we did, in fact, have the company innovated on a, on a whole variety of things, including public beta, including affiliate programs and the like. But it really was 
a very early version of a freemium business model where mm -hmm. the product was free for personal use and use in educational institutions, but we charge businesses. And so that's basically what we came up with. And I will point out that working with Jim Clark and you know with his guidance, we came out and we had a plan that said the first year of revenue, we were going to do a little over $50 million. Uh -huh. And then they hired three VPs who were all much more experienced than I. I was a kid, a puppy dog. Right. And they came in and said, you know, what are you doing? We actually are going to be responsible for delivering this. This is ridiculous. They lowered the plan to 35 and then we went out and did 80. <laughs> so Jim Clark is a fascinating character. I love Michael Lewis's The New New Thing. Tell us a little bit about working with Jim Clark. Well, Jim has an amazing capability of spotting megatrends and assembling incredible people to do it. Before the trends are understood or well-known. We can all see a trend when it's fully robust, but his genius is really, this is where the trend is going to go. Uh, am I overstating it's, No, that? it's exactly right. And so to his credit, he went out and saw this thing coming, mm -hmm. and he went and grabbed Mark Andreessen, who was... Also a kid. 21 years old, right. right, at the time, and said, this is the guy who's been the innovator in the category. I want to work with him. We can go do this together. And there aren't very many people who are already luminaries, who've already started and led public companies who go and look to a 21-year-old right. and say, we're going to do this together. We're partners. And and be right in his selection of people. And By the way, Andreessen was a prior guest. It's one of everybody's favorite uh, interviews because he is just fascinating. So you were working with him in the yeah. early days. Tell us a little bit about Mark. What was that like? So uh, it was really clear that uh, not only was Mark brilliant, but he was just learning at an incredible rate. And so I don't know about you, but at 21, I had no judgment about anything, certainly not about Guilty. business. <laughs> and he just was a voracious reader and a voracious learner and sought out mentors and got better and better and better. And to me, that was really the most striking thing about Mark in those days. That That's fascinating you say that because when I sat down with him out in Palo Alto to do our conversation, he described Mark Zuckerberg, founder and CEO of Facebook, as, quote, a learning machine. And pretty much that's how you're describing Andreessen. It's interesting. Each of you have described you describing him, him describing Zuckerberg, more or less in the same way. That's right. So, so let's talk a little bit about um, the name. Where did the name Netscape come from? So the I had been keeping a notebook of possible names. I'd led brainstorming exercises with the engineering team, and we came up, we were just not coming up with anything. The company was founded as Mosaic Communications. I there recall. was saber rattling about trademark infringement and lawsuits. From from who else? Uh, from the University of Illinois. So Mark had been at the huh. University of Illinois and had created the freeware product Mosaic there. Gotcha. That, that's not an unreasonable claim on their part. I agree with that. And so one day I was uh, Jim Clark, Mark Andreessen, and Mike Homer, who was our new vice president of marketing, pulled me into Mark's office, which was a tiny little office with stacks of paper and boxes of honeycombs everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And they said, this is critical. We really need to do something about it. And I'd been working on it. We'd all been working on it. We had nothing that was any good. And it literally just popped into my head that you've the this visual view of the internet and the ability to navigate across it. And I said, how about Netscape? And everyone looked around and they said, yeah, that might be it. And we walked out of the room and that was it. Bang, just like that. Yeah. that That's unbelievable. So Netscape goes public in 1996. 1995. 95? Four, 14 months after the company was founded. Mm -hmm. Which is an incredibly short period of time. Uh, people looked a little askance at it, thinking it was, well, they have a business model, but look at the valuation. It just blew up on IPO. Was there any sense in 1995 that this was starting to become unhinged? Or was that still so early days that, hey, we rang the bell, let's move on to the business of running the company? It was really more the latter. I think it was, the way I think of it, there were kind of two phases of that bubble. 
and we were at the beginning of phase one. So we really did have a sense that we were doing something special and remarkable, that we were in the right place at the right time. And, you know, it literally was siege mentality and we were just after it every day. No room for rest, no room to think about it, sitting at the eye of the hurricane. But the company, if you think about it in the context of today's internet companies and technology companies, it had an $8 billion market cap, which is which is a big market cap. A little rich, sure. But... Uh, but uh, enormous potential. But at the enormous same time. potential. It actually mainly drifted down, and then at the end, the acquisition by AOL really was about an eight billion dollar acquisition. So it 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 did end up getting back to that number, but it pretty quickly drifted down after it after the early days. When you were at Netscape after the IPO, there was a tremendous amount of potential, and it looked like, hey, this could be a giant company that really brings the internet forward to the 20th century until the behemoth from Redmond, Washington, named Microsoft, said, hey, we want a piece of that. When did you guys realize that, oh, these guys are really going to put a hurt on us? It was about a year in. Mm-hmm. It was about a year in, and they had started writing a little bit about it, and at some point we saw Bill Gates' memo on it, and then you could really start to see them attempt to, to make a difference. And it took them about another year to warm up. But by the end of year two, they had gotten their guns trained on us and started having a pretty substantial impact on the business. What, once they built uh, Internet Explorer into Windows, every PC in the world comes with their web browser. Why would anyone have to download Navigator? Well, it's particularly challenging if uh, Steve Ballmer or Bill Gates is calling the CEO of your hardware manufacturer and telling them, if you include Netscape Navigator, they'll stop selling you Windows. <laughs> and hence, the subsequent antitrust trial. Indeed. Which ultimately, Netscape, uh, was there a settlement, I believe? Well, yeah. There, there, no, ultimately, there, there was a settlement. It was, frankly, long at, It was two right. years after the, the sale to AOL. Right. So it wasn't fast enough to have any useful impact. As, as all patent litigation and antitrust litigation tends to be. Um, and then eventually the uh, antitrust case was settled. And, but that created a Cambrian explosion of people freed from the oppressive thumb of Microsoft. And at the same time, you end up going to the starting uh, as a venture capitalist what was it like in the mid to late 90s when there was a lot of cash going to startups and a lot of innovation in software and semiconductor and hardware? That was really, an am- must have been an amazing period of time. It was an amazing period of time. So I started in September of 98. So I think of that, that think, remember the Asian flu, that sure. period in there. So that's right when I started. And basically coming out of the Asian flu was phase two of the bubble, which was about 10x on phase one of the bubble and it really was quite insane and did you realize you were in a bubble in real time because everybody says well you know you can only identify it after the fact but you're right in the thick of it is are people looking around and saying hey we've valuations have become unhinged from reality in 99 and early 2000 i think it was pretty clear and so, you know, one of my, I was sitting with a very experienced group of investors and we were just looking at a whole bunch of things where you'd say, you know, we're not going to, we're just not going to do it. We're not going to touch it if it goes into those, into those kind of categories. But it's still the case that uh, I can think of one specific example where someone was offering us $750 million for a company, which was an irrationally high price, so- but, the, but the comps were much higher in the end, the company turned down the acquisition, and it you know, ended up being worth less than $100 million. Right. Regretted, regretted not that's, selling into the bubble. That's right. So there's one of the, one of the legends of the, of the venture capital industry when the f- bubble finally blew up said, basically, you know, thank God it ended because I was just holding on to my principles. <laughs> like I was just about to let go. I couldn't hold on anymore. That that crowd enthusiasm, it's really easy to get swept up both positively and negatively. When the crowd is surging, it's it's a siren call. That is really difficult to resist. And it sounds like you successfully navigated that. 
I think it's an overstatement to say. I say well, <laughs> so I, you know, I was the new guy. Uh huh. And I. So you were a little cautious to begin with. Well, no, I would say the I was the new guy, so I was unencumbered. I mean, a venture capitalist ah. is most dangerous when they start. Gotcha. Because you don't know very much. Right. And you've got a clean slate. You're not sitting on 10 boards already. Right. And I was the guy who knew the internet stack. So I wasn't doing crazy consumer internet things, mm-hmm. but still, I made, uh, I went too quickly. I made nine effectively pre-revenue venture capital investments over an 18-month period. Early seed, very early stage? Yeah. Uh, you know, in 99, there wasn't anything called a seed financing, so they were, you know, Series A financings at right. formation. Just very early That's A's. right. And so, and Quinn Street, which is now a public company with $300 million in revenue, was the one that paid for the other eight. I have to ask you, Costa Noah, there's nobody on your team page named Costa Noah where and I keep mangling, unfortunately, the name. Where does the name Costa Noa come from? So the Costa Noans were the Native American tribe that occupied from Big Sur all the way to the tip of the San Francisco Peninsula, and so it's a way of uh, sort of situating both in place and also I think recognizing that uh, the development of Silicon Valley is has layers and is built on the shoulders of giants. So we try to honor the old school craft of the past, as well as having some ways in which we're uh, modern and innovating. So one of the things we always hear about early mover advantage is it's the second mouse that gets the cheese. How accurate is that? Is there a, a big advantage to being first or is timing more important? So the answer, as in most things that involve investing, is it depends. Okay. But I And so there are many examples of each. Mm-hmm. I do think it's the case that, you know, one of the things, you know, we invest in companies that change the way the world does business, but we tr- are trying to focus on things that have platform capabilities that can build ecosystems. And I do think it is the case that when you're talking about platforms, it is often the case that the first mover to be in market and start attracting users and the data that comes with it and the applications that get built on top of it really does have a significant advantage. So you say you want to invest in companies that can change the world of business. In what way? How, how can a startup or an early venture-funded entity really have an impact on the giant world of business? It's amazing, actually, the imp- impact that they can have. So, for example... All companies that sell to businesses use a, a form of account-based marketing. You sell to companies, not to individuals. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, there wasn't really any way to do that in the context of online or digital advertising. So Demandbase, which is a portfolio company, basically identified a way of matching those two pieces of data together. And by the time they got distributed to hundreds of companies using it, it is a self-refreshing data advantage, and it is now the platform for account-based marketing. And they're, you know, Google isn't doing it, Facebook isn't doing it, Salesforce isn't doing it, Adobe isn't doing it, Oracle isn't doing it. And so it really is the case that you can sometimes take this kernel of an insight and turn it into something really special. Would, would we call that middleware? How would you describe what, what they offer? Uh, no, I would call it a uh, I would call it a business to business marketing application mm-hmm. for account based marketing. Huh, that that's quite fascinating. Tell us about some other types of companies that you invest in. Well, so there's another one. We're here at Bloomberg, mm-hmm. and Alation is an enterprise data catalog for data-driven companies. And the, the problem is that end users, people who are analytic in nature, spend hours, dozens of hours, sometimes a third of their time looking for the right data and trying to understand what it means before they can do any analysis. And so Alation is a company that we incubated from scratch, uh-huh. and it basically helps those end users find what they're looking for and understand what it means. And this is an example of something that comes out of 10 years of research, of looking at a field called master data management that I would argue fundamentally doesn't really work. Master data management. That's right, which is where the idea was that humans are going to document all the data and write down what it means. And it turns out that this is a place where the dawn of artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. combined with humans is able to do something that humans alone couldn't do. And as a result, it's incredibly useful for companies like eBay and uh, and other large enterprises uh-huh. who have masses of data that the end user can't possibly get their arms around. Huh. Th- that's interesting. So let's talk a little bit about not the investing aspect of it, but the business of venture capital investing. 
you've just raised, is it the third fund? Third fund. Right. So first, to the layperson, why do we keep rolling out different funds if it's the same group of people investing in the same types of technology? What What's the thinking behind this vintage, that vintage, and the following? So it really is a result of the the fact that limited partners, so investors, which are often endowments or mm -hmm. large financial institutions, want to ensure alignment of interests and no conflict of interests. So they generally tend to say, hey, we'll make an investment decision up front, and then you invest in a group of companies and support those group of companies all out of one pool of capital. Mm -hmm. And five years later, when you're investing in another group of companies, keep those companies together so that you don't use somebody else's money to bail out a bad investment of gotcha. an earlier vintage. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. So you're running three funds um, simultaneously. Some are fully invested. How, how long does it take? So here it is. Let, let's say a new fund launches January 1st, 2018. How long? And it's uh, $100 million. How long will it take to deploy that $100 million and you're fully invested? So the, the way it works is typically in the next three years, we'll make all the new commitments to companies. Three years. Three years. So over that period of time, we will invest in something like 17 or 18 companies. And of that, maybe 40% of the capital will be called and already invested in those companies. But 60% will be reserved for follow-on rounds in those companies. Let me take apart those. Let's unpack those numbers a little bit. So 18 companies over 36 months, that means essentially you're deciding on a company every other month. Is it that spread out or is it a little more bunched together? What's the process like to manage, all right, we're making this decision, we're adding this company. How do you pace that? How do you source that? First, we've got a team, a five-person investment team, and we basically work as a team to attack our most important opportunities and talk to customers and prospects, talk to technologists to do technical due diligence, spend lots of time talking to founders to see how they think. Mm -hmm. Because so much is unknown that you're fundamentally investing in people and products. And, and I've heard that repeatedly is we're not buying technologies, we're buying a founder, we're investing in a founder and their vision. Is, is that a fair descriptor or... Or are you buying technology? Are you investing in new technologies? I would say we are investing in the founder's vision and ability to think. And mm -hmm. that's the part that I think people don't really talk about because there are all of these. You know, to me, the thing that people think of founders as I want Steve Jobs and he's going to be right 100% of the time over the <laughs> next 20 years and I'm just back in his vision. And what we look at is... I want Steve Jobs, who doesn't have reality distortion field. I want Steve Jobs, who is completely immersed in reality, who mm -hmm. has situational awareness, who knows what is possible, who knows what market needs, and can navigate, assemble the pieces, and get themselves to the right spot. You mentioned when you were at Sutter Hill, you did nine investments right away. One of them was really successful, paid for the other eight ones, not so successful. In general, what do the statistics look like? Uh, of 100 investments um, that are made, how many are losers? How many are break-evens? How many are minor winners? And how many are the you know, unfathomable home runs that pay for the previous 99 and then some? Well, so I can only talk about my experience, which I think is frankly different than the industry as a whole. Which for is another question, why? But we'll get to that. Yeah, so in my experience, I'd say... One out of 10 are great winners, meaning 10 times your money or better. 10x, wow. Yeah, so one, one out of 10. And then it really is the case that about, uh, I'd say, uh, two-thirds end up being winners of some, you know, of some material variety, meaning, you know. Break even, three, a little better, a yeah, little yeah, worse. Yeah, you know, 2x to, you know, 4 or 5x, which doesn't make a venture capital fund, but it's better right. than a stick in the eye. Right. And, uh, and then... Out of you know, out of ten, you'll have two where you get your money back, and w one where you write it off, and that is very different than the industry as I a was, whole. I was going to say, my you tell me if my understanding is wrong, that fifty percent are outright money losers, and the next twenty five percent are break evens, and then some more do one x, two x, three x, and then there's that one home run that pays for everything, and then some. That that a fair assessment of. The of the industry. industry as a whole. I think that's right. The reasons are 
one that the consumer business, which we don't really do, is much more volatile. Sure. It's not only a hits business, but it's also a luck business. Right. That a, you know, a great team assembled on a validated problem in the business-to-business world can usually figure something out, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that's certainly one. I think the second is, we're as early-stage investors, we're all former product managers. We think like product people. So we're used to doing... Uh, it isn't just a, hey, let's take a flyer on this. We're asking the same questions that the founder should be asking his or herself, which is, what do customers care about? Is this a big enough problem to be worth addressing? Do the set of technologies that are available at this time, like, can, can we actually solve this problem in a meaningful way? If so, how much is it worth to a customer? And you know, so because we both make that set of assessments in a really nuanced way up front, and then we've got an operating team that helps these typically product-oriented founders build the sales and marketing and commercial infrastructure that they need for their product, their customer, their price point, their market. We think that we have higher odds of success. That, that's really fascinating. We have been speaking with Greg Sands of Costa Noa Ventures. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things venture capital investing. You can find all the podcast extras wherever fine podcasts are sold, Apple iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. I don't know why I do that every week. I just, it's, I, I like this part of stuff. Greg, thank you so much for doing this. I've been, I've been looking forward to doing this. And you know what I forgot to say earlier? I'll say it here just for um, completeness, completeness's sake. Um, my disclosure is we have a mutual friend uh, who is a senior executive at Dimensional Fund Advisors. And my disclosure is, uh, I'm an investor in DFA funds. My cl- clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management invest in their funds. And I probably should have said that during broadcast. I don't know if I want to move that back there or not. But there's the disclosure, although I make no um, – that that's fairly well-known and fairly public. But we met through someone from Dimensional, and I, I always feel better disclosing more rather than less. Let's, let's keep talking about venture investing because some of the questions we didn't get to – I think are really interesting, starting with you referenced luck on the consumer side. The question I have is how important is luck across the board, the board when it comes to technology or venture investing? Is, is serendipity all that important or is it more rigorous and here's our process and here's the outcome and randomness doesn't matter? Uh, you, you both are true. I mean, luck, luck plays a huge role. It would be completely disingenuous to mm-hmm. say that it doesn't. I do think that it has a uh, that there is an element of you put yourself in lucky places, right? And so you navigate to those, and you think your way through them, and you work with the best people that you can. So you can increase your odds of getting lucky. Is that what? That's we're, exactly right. It's probability plus randomness. That's right. Huh. That that's really interesting. And I wanted to ask you about. Um, some of the companies, we talked about the success ratio. I want to ask you about some of the companies that got away and what you learned about that and some of the companies that, ah, maybe this wasn't a great investment. So, so let's start with the first one. And the reason this question came to mind is a number of venture firms have a page on their site where, hey, we missed this opportunity to invest in Uber. We could have been an early investor in Amazon. We said no. It's almost like a badge of honor that, hey, here's our process. It doesn't lead us here, but we stick to the process, and and here's how it didn't work out. Any stories along those lines? Anybody? Yeah. Kinda- well, this is a this this is a a, a uh, an auspicious time to note that Fred Wilson introduced me to MongoDB for its Series A financing. MongoDB went public yesterday, I think. Uh-huh. Dwight Merriman is 
an extraordinary founder and technologist. Uh, it was based in New York. Uh, there was no sort of business partner or commercial partner with him at that time, mm-hmm. and it's an and and it's an open source company, and it is you know open source uh, doesn't monetize as well as what you would think of as you know proprietary software, and so it had the the category has to take off and be incredibly important, which NoSQL has, and you have to win. You can't be number two, mm-hmm. and so in the end, I. You know, for me, the thing that I that I learned from that is when you have a uh, an anchor founder who is a great technologist and a Pied Piper for other technical talent, that those can be really interesting opportunities. There will be a question over time of how you graft the sales and marketing and business leadership sure. into the company, but that can be a very good formula, and that's one that I missed. And. I would have imagined that, you know, between Oracle and Microsoft, isn't that like a giant, and then you throw in Salesforce beyond that, isn't that the 90% of the database market, or am I naive about that? Oracle itself is 90% <laughs> of the database market. So so, so it, you're running into a monopoly, but it, that is SQL, which is basically a very heavyweight right. uh, database. 8i, 9i, I don't even know what we're up to these Probably days. 11, right? But then in the... In the world of NoSQL and then Hadoop, which is Cloudera and Hortonworks uh-huh. and the like, there's been a, an explosion of lighter weight databases to manage less structured data. And so that that has been a really important megatrend, and they were on the front edge of it. And that was, so the question is, what was the takeaway? What was the I, anytime there's a fail, I always want to say personally or anyone else. So what was the lesson from that? What what did you take away from? Hmm, that one got away. I think it is this idea that, uh, particularly in in the infrastructure category, mm-hmm. that that building the entire company around a great technologist as a po- uh, is is a can be a really important way to build those companies. So I think the model that I grew up in is you build company around great CEO, uh-huh. and so I think the 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 idea that you can build around great technologists and graft on that business leadership over time right. because. And in, in incredible technologists in infrastructure categories tend to be driven more by technology than by uh, than by you know relationship to to customer. I I may be quoting Andreessen. I'm not sure where this came from. Uh, yeah, actually, it is Andreessen. It's you could possibly teach a technologist the CEO and related business skills, but it's all but impossible to teach a CEO that technology visionary insight that that is something that you have and can't learn but hey many good technologists can learn the business side of it and i'm i'm slightly mangling that but no you, but that, you're kinda, but, but absolutely mark mark is absolutely on record on that and i would i would actually uh for for our my purposes and our purposes i'd actually so there are a few jensen wongs from mm-hmm. nvidia but there aren't that many either and ultimately, you know, a technologist to remain CEO needs to go to boot camp on sales, right. boot camp on marketing, needs to own those. And off and so ultimately the you know, this is what I talk when I talk about grafting those on, they need to know who to hire and how to manage them. And so they can yes, they can often learn it, but they've got to be a learning machine like Mark himself was or like Mark Zuckerberg was. Mm-hmm. And some will end up uh you know, some will end up doing that and some will end up, you know, not succeeding in learning all of all of those skills and will need a partner in another form. And what we try to be is to, is a um, is a great long term partner that helps them understand where they are and understand where they need to be in order to lead the company. Uh, I, I guess I have to go to boot camp myself then. Um, let's talk a little bit about the space, venture capital and private equity. Both seem to be pretty competitive, attracting a lot of um, new and expanded uh, players in the space. How competitive is venture investing these days? Well, it, it's highly competitive, but honestly, it's always been highly competitive. So people will say, oh, there's too much money sloshing around and, and the like. And my, my view is everybody always thinks there's too much money in their own asset class. Welcome to life in perfect competition. Right. <laughs> so... That, that kind of leads to my next question. You guys really are an early A or seed investor. 
meaning you're looking at technologies when they're still very new, when the companies are still very new. Um, there may or may not be any sort of revenue yet. Uh, why that space, and does that provide you guys with any sort of advantage over some of your peers? Absolutely. The I mean, the, the two reasons to be an early-stage investor from a sort of financial or strategy point of view are fundamentally about ownership, you know, being able to buy, you know, big chunks of companies and about multiples of capital. And so it, it isn't a category where you can invest very much money, where you can raise really big funds, where you can have enormous fee income, but it is the place where you can earn the biggest multiples of capital. Now, I will also point out that personally, the reason why I'm an early stage investor is because that's what I love doing. Mm -hmm. That's the time in a company's life that I'm most interested in. Though it's the time where you build the foundational relationship with partners that helping them navigate through this process of launching first product and great, you sold three of them. Now, who do we hire? Who else can possibly sell this? And what does that person look like? And how do we go do it? That's the most fun that there is in business. So how intimately are you involved with the companies once you found them? It's not, here's a check, we'll, we'll, we'll follow up with you every quarter. You're much more hands-on. I'm uh, so yes, unequivocally, founders and management teams are running companies. Mm -hmm. You know, just to be clear. But I, I I'll use the the example of Alation, where they incubated in our office for a year. So they were up to fifteen or sixteen people by the time they left. And so there was an almost daily interaction and a debrief after they came back from customer meetings and strategy conversations and, you know, all of these team building conversations on a highly regular basis. And that both is great fun, but I think it it really helps because it is lonely at the top. It's lonely being a founder. It's lonely being a CEO and having someone who is there, but frankly, whom you trust and who you're willing to be open with and you know even vulnerable with, I don't know the answer to X, can you help me think about Y, is, I think, a huge asset. So what about the macro environment of the economy, the stock market? When you're, when you're looking at a company, a founder, a technology, does that come into the calculation, or is it, hey, the next five years are going to elapse regardless of where we are with the market cycle? It really is more, more the latter. We our, our fundamental discipline is micro and mm -hmm. bottoms up. The way I like to say that to our team is the company is the unit of analysis here. Right. Right. And so we go do those fundamentals. Let me repeat that. The company is the unit of analysis here, as opposed to what? As opposed to uh, the market. So there are thematic investors who I think sometimes do a very good job but saying, we're going to go invest in this category and we're going to interview every company and we're going to pick one because we're smart enough to know that this is the one important theme. So it's top down. Hey, this social networking thing is big. Let's go find a social company. That's right. And so I think the what I refer to as the bulge bracket venture firms uh -huh. tend to think, <laughs> hey, there's, you know, there's something moving in this category and we've got to have one. And they so they do this top down process. And so ultimately, as I as I said, products and people, the only way that macro really comes into it is, uh, one, we have to be sure that we can finance the company, mm -hmm. right? So there'll be other capital available. And number- you, Meaning you work with other VCs, we work, you'll, you'll co-invest with, and I assume you have relationships with people all over. We have relationships with people all over who will lead a B and a C and a D round. So that's one. And then the second is, as we work with companies, the question is- this is actually where the macro environment plays a stronger role, is uh, how willing are you to get over your skis in pursuing growth at any price? And I would say that the bulge bracket firms who have big funds, they got to return $4 billion if you've got a $1.5 billion fund. Right. And they tell companies, your job is to strap on the rocket boosters. Mm -hmm. And you may go into the side of the cliff or you may get into orbit, but my job is to maximize the number that get into orbit. And I think one of the advantages of a boutique firm like us is that we can work with founders and say, look, we can uh, let's build on a solid foundation. Let's prepare ourselves for explosive motion, but let's um, be thoughtful about how much to invest in growth and, and, and when to 
uh, when to accelerate and when to tap on the brakes. And I think we're oftentimes a better partner to companies than even the biggest names in the business. So you mentioned earlier the fee versus the performance side. So with a hedge fund, it's two and twenty. Venture capital is not all that different. No, it's typically two and twenty. Two and twenty. So if you're on a hundred times less money. Uh, well, if you're a one of the bulge firms that have billions and billions of dollars, that two percent is not insubstantial. When I'm hearing from you as an early investor, a there isn't enough capacity to put billions of dollars to work. It's that's why these are 150 and 200 million dollar um, funds. And b the upside to you is to be right more than wrong, and it's the performance side. So. If they're looking at 3x on the performance side, you guys are looking at a a bigger number is that am I catching that right? Yeah, I think it's it is right that a we are striving for higher multiples of capital uh-huh. and uh, you know I think any of the LPs who actually look at the numbers say that people who are wor- raising multi-billion dollar funds have a hard time returning uh you know 10X, 3x, yeah. right? But but yeah, we're you know we're we are striving for uh, you know, for four and five and six and seven X doing 10 X on a fund is extraordinary. It has right. been done, but it's an, ex- it, it, and you know, and people but like that's Fred an Wilson. Amazon or a Facebook or a Google or something that's just, that's absolutely off, right. off the chain. Um, what's the process like raising money? Who are the venture investors? I don't mean by name, but, uh, academic endowments, pension funds. Who who are your LPs? Yeah, so I started out five years ago, and I'd never raised a dime in my life. Really? And so and so I really went to co-investors who I'd worked with on boards, other venture capitalists, and a couple of them, people like Fred Wilson and Brad Feld, introduced me to some of their LPs, and then I just anytime someone would refer me, I just kept talking, mm-hmm. and it turns out that. The university endowments and hospital endowments are a big group Uh that there are, uh, for small funds, the pension funds really show up in the form of fund of funds that effectively are wholesalers. They disaggregate pension funds just because they have too much money. Right. A pension fund needs to write a $100 million check, not a $10 million check. Right. Uh, And fund of funds also aggregate money from family offices. And sometimes family offices come direct. So those are really the three main categories, Mm -hmm. endowments, fund of funds, and family offices. So you said you never raised money before five years ago. I'm in the exact same situation. What are your experiences like speaking to investors and prospective investors? How, How does that go? And how you obviously have been very successful. How did you learn how to pet that animal? I honestly trial and error. Mm-hmm. I uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I was young and stupid, naive, and I just marched into it. And I do think that there's a look. There's a great lesson there that you can, you know, just learn by doing. I I did work with uh, a lawyer who was also counsel to Sutter Hill, so mm-hmm. I'd had. 20 years of trust in history sure. and working with him who could be a little bit of a river guide to that. Uh, we didn't use any you know, external consultants. And I think over time, I've been able to incorporate advice from other venture capitalists, from people on our team who've helped improve our storytelling around that. Because mm-hmm. I really started out saying, I've got a point of view of what we want to do and who we are. And all I want to do is authentically represent that. And people for whom that's good enough, great. And where it's not good enough, so be it. It becomes a sort of self-selecting group of people. That's right. It's a it's a mutual fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and you referenced machine learning and artificial intelligence earlier. I would really not be doing my job if I didn't ask you. Lots of people seem to be concerned about the upcoming singularity and eventual robot revolution is are are these fears overblown have we been watching too many sci-fi movies well i think those fears are overblown but i do think that it's right to say that 
the the Cambrian explosion in AI, which it really is, mm-hmm. right? People have been working on it for decades, but and now, I do love that expression. Th- that's it, you know, it really you know the proliferation of data, the availability of huge amounts of compute in the cloud, and modest improvement in the algorithms mm-hmm. have really led us to be able to do a different set of things. And so every business application, for example, will have AI fully infused. And I do think that that has employment implications. We're coming off a period where wage stagnation has been a problem for 40 years. Right. Long time. That's right. And I think that will, there will continue to be the elimination of certain job categories. At the same time, there are extraordinary new opportunities. I'll give you one example. We've got a company called Bug Crowd, which is- Bug Crowd. Bug Crowd, which- helps companies orchestrate a bug bounty program mm-hmm. so that... So in other words, they want users to identify issues with their software so they could fix them that, more or less in real time. And so, right, so that the good guys can find them before the bad guys find them. Is this security specific or is it everything? It is security specific and they have over 40,000 security researchers on the platform who are working with companies like Visa and Fiat Chrysler and PayPal to identify those kinds of vulnerabilities. And there are people really making a living. Really? As security researchers. In other words, they're trying to hack a company and when they identify the hack, they let, so really had had one of the credit companies um, actually use this. Yes. Right, had Equifax done this, they could have saved themselves a lot of time and headache. And, That's and right. Energy. And so this is an example of a job that didn't exist five years ago. Right. But people can make, people can make really good incomes and six figures, seven figures, six figures, and uh, five, you know, high five figures and six figures. And people can do it at their convenience, and they can do it wherever they are. And there are examples. Uh, there was a story recently about a thirteen-year-old kid in Bangladesh working out of internet cafes who taught himself to hack with YouTube videos and he is supporting his family. That's amazing. That's totally amazing. So it sounds like you are really focused at a very interesting stage of technology and it also sounds like you really enjoy what you do. I love what I do. So on that note, let's jump to our uh, standard questions. We ask all our guests. Um, Let's start with Tell us the most important thing that people don't know about your background. (laughs) So I didn't know what I wanted to do out of college. Mm -hmm. And so while I was figuring that out, my very first job was as the receptionist at the Houghton Mifflin Publishing Company that I got through a temp agency. Okay. Houghton Mifflin was a huge publisher. Yeah. So, you know, textbook publisher. Mm -hmm. And to me, the point of that is career is long. And your job is to navigate and to learn and to put yourself on a path and go on a journey. And your first job isn't the destination. Very interesting. Tell us about some of your early mentors who helped guide your path. Well, I would say coming out of my first real professional job, which was at a management consulting company now known as Mercer. So one, Adrian Slywatsky, who is a author of The Profit Zone and a handful of other books, really taught me to think and understand business. I was a political science major. Mm -hmm. So that to me was a real opening and I learned a ton. Now, the thing that's also interesting is that my, uh, the other person I'd put on that list is Steve Levitt, author of Freakonomics. Oh, sure. So he was my uh, classmate and my colleague on that case. And I jokingly say, I did some of my best work when I was teamed up with Steve Levitt. (laughs) You know, I also did some of my best work at Netscape when I was teamed up with Ben Horowitz. It turns out, you know, working with Steve taught me how to work with people who are smarter than I am mm-hmm. and to still contribute and and collaborate in a way that is really highly productive. And that's ultimately, I think, a, a really important skill. That That's really very interesting. Um, venture capitalists, who, in, who influenced your approach to VC investing? Well, I, I, I've mentioned Fred Wilson before, but he... Uh, Fred, Fred Wilson is at, in at Union New Square York. Ventures, right? Uh, yeah, and is uh, I'm point. By the way, I'm literally <laughs> pointing down to Union Square. That's right, and and notably the early investor in Twitter, which I also passed on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, Fred, there there are lots of great business opportunities. But Fred helped really teach me the value of platforms, 
platforms and, and, and ecosystems. And that's how you take the 10x opportunity and turn it into the 50 or 100x opportunity. Ecosystems and platforms. Yes. Huh, that's really interesting. And I'm going to do something I never do. Fred, you keep saying no. I've had Mark on. I've had Greg on. Come on, step up. Let, let, let's uh, get you uh, uh, out of downtown and up to Midtown for an hour or two. Um, this is everybody's favorite question. Tell us about some of your favorite books. Fiction, nonfiction, technology, venture investing, or what have you. So, you know, to me, the the book that basically every educated adult should read is Sapiens. Mm -hmm. The the predecessor of it, fifteen years earlier, was Guns, Germs, and Steel. Uh huh. But to me, those explain who we are mm -hmm. as you know as a people and how we got here. And to me, in the context of something like Sapiens. It's fascinating to look at uh, language and money as early APIs, mm -hmm. right? Application programming interfaces, yep. ways of exchanging information or exchanging goods. And so I, I love having that sort of universal and historical perspective. Have you gotten to Homo Deus yet? That yes. was his follow-up. That's right. So I found Sapiens to be a little dark. Um, <laughs> agriculture leads to disease. It was a little... But Homo Deus is just a little dy dystopia view yes. of the future of mankind. He's a fascinating writer. I love the way he contextualizes uh, physics, biology, and chemistry, the way he puts that into a broader context in the beginning of Sapiens. I, I found that really to be a fascinating thing. G give us so, uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, yeah. Sapiens. How We Got to Now, which is Stephen Johnson. So it basically You're the second person who's recommended that Oh, this it's week. fabulous. And so this idea that things that we just take for granted mm -hmm. were fundamental innovations and have had as big an implica uh, implications for, uh, for, for the human race as things like transistors that are no, that, that we acknowledge have had so an example would be glass right right you don't, don't even, even think, think about twice it. about it right that's right and not not only glass but safety glass think about what that did for automobiles and who even thinks twice about that exactly right so but but you know before glass you were you either had light or you were cold it was one <laughs> or the other one. <laughs> right um how about not how about fiction i all of us read Nonfiction, yes, because we can rationalize the time as well. It's work related, but how often do you step back and read something that's just uh, fiction? I would say uh, about twenty percent of what I read is fiction. I basically pick about one out of five from my wife's book clubs. Uh huh. And there are the person that I. So by the way, I'll read anything that Michael Lewis writes. I'll read, right. any, uh, but I really love. Michael Chabon, and for me, that started with Cavalier and Clay. Michael Chabon, Cavalier and Clay. I am not familiar with him. So it is a uh, so it actually is a New York story, mm -hmm. but it's two kids who start out in Eastern Europe, you know, who migrate to New York, and then they basically start a comic book company. Uh huh. And they and they, I you know, I think they end up on the on the Lower East Side, and they navigate their way through. And it's uh, but he has an amazing human insight. And turn of a phrase. And huh. so for, for me, when I'm reading a book uh, with a truly great author, I find myself periodically, I just laugh out loud. I, <laughs> where they just capture humanity in a, in a way that I had never thought of. And it gives unique insight, but it also is just funny. It, it makes my wife crazy when we're coming. I read Ready Player One on a flight back from Europe. I, I pretty much killed the whole book on, on a flight. And parts of it are really funny. And I start laughing out loud. And she just gets embarrassed by by my hyena-like guffaw in the middle of a, of a room. I watch her. I get an elbow, and then she turns red. And it's actually pretty funny. I'm going to have to check that book out. That sounds really fascinating. Um, the venture capital industry, tell us about what's changed since you've become a VC. What, what are the big shifts that have taken place? Well, I think... 20 years ago, it felt much more like an ivory tower where mm -hmm. people came to pay homage to venture capitalists and venture capitalists made pronouncements about whether or not they were going to fund. And I would say That's there, interesting. there's been a huge, so some of, there's been a proliferation of seed funds and incubators. So there are many more sources of capital mm -hmm. and there's a transparency 
And so there are reputation effects and the like, which you see in a bunch of, um, you know, uh, that I think ultimately holds venture capitals and and their firms accountable for being truly good partners. Hmm. So the, certainly that's one. The, the other is, you know, there are two and a half billion cell phones in the world. Right. Right. So the markets that we can address uh, much bigger than it used are to much be. bigger. And I would say. 20 years ago, the only venture capital was really only proven in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Boston at that point had kind of fallen off the map. And there really is. There is innovation everywhere. Mm-hmm. And there is, and so both in a lot of pockets in the U.S., outside of Silicon Valley, but also in, you know, we found some really interesting investments in Australia. There's a, obviously a ton of work being done in London and Estonia and parts of Scandinavia. You and say so it obviously is, Estonia and Scandinavia. I don't think a lot of people would think that's obvious. I mean, New York, Chicago, Boston, Austin, San Francisco, Seattle, sure. Estonia? What is happening in Estonia? Well, I think, so the, um, the Russian Soviet Empire had a long history of computer science. And so, uh, but there are, you know, starting with Skype and some and some other companies, there have been uh, some really impressive companies and even more really impressive technologists that have come out of those places. So often they will set up, end up setting setting up headquarters in uh, Silicon Valley or elsewhere. But that kernel of innovation is coming from all over the world. Do, so Silicon Valley is infamous for having the full critical mass of people, capital, technology, access to universities, access to great companies. It's all right there in one place. How essential is that? Do you get that in a New York or a Seattle or or in Estonia? Or do you have to have ties to Silicon Valley as, as the motherland? Well, I'd say Silicon Valley in its in sort of the breadth and depth of its market is really unique in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean it is a very very unique place. That said, you can build really interesting companies plenty of other places and we, you know we do have companies all over the country. I think for companies that are even farther away, you know so outside the US, it ends up being very important to have some connection to 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 Silicon Valley and the ability to do that. Sometimes that's opening up a sales and marketing office. Sometimes it's having headquarters there and keeping product development where the company was started. But I think even in Europe, the most successful venture capital firms are ones that have significant Silicon Valley ties so they can help the companies translate back and forth. Very, very interesting. Uh, We briefly touched on this before, but I want to revisit it in this context. Tell us about a time you failed personally. I don't mean a failed venture investment. Uh, a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. We all fail multiple times sure. in our lives. And I would say um, the most dramatic one, even though it wasn't actually a failure, was what it felt like raising fund one for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I talked about not having done it. I had not really ever had a sales job. I hadn't been turned down that many times in my life, I believe. Uh, you know, I had probably about a... 15% hit rate, but that means about an 85% sure. turn down rate. And actually, it in its own way, it was kind of crushing. Mm-hmm. And it happened, at, it happened at a time when there were a couple of things going on in, in my family, including a, you know, a young daughter at that time who tore ACL and the like. And for me, the, the ultimate lesson and the, of going through that was really adopting this idea of the growth mentality. So, you know, Carol Dweck's book is sort of the seminal piece on that that what's the name of that book uh i think it's called i think it's just called mentality but i could be wrong about that but it 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 basically summarizes this mindset mindset there you go that your job is just to learn your job isn't to win your job isn't to be right your job is just to learn it comes back to what we talked about with andreessen and zuckerberg your job is to learn and so when you basically take the pressure off, because that, I, hey, I, I have to succeed, I can't fail, ended up being a monkey on my back. And breaking through to the other side to say, hey, look, we're just going to do our best and we're going to learn. And by the way, I'm going to be better next year than I am now. And That's uh, very insightful. Was a, to... It was really, um, I, I would really recommend 
that uh, that people pick up Carol Dreck's mindset, and it was a it it really did shift the way that I approach my work. Huh, fascinating. T- tell us what you do outside of the office to relax, either mentally or physically. Uh, most importantly, I'm I'm a cyclist, so I'm a, I'm a road cyclist. We mm-hmm. have you know incredible territory, so I can ride out my front door for two to three hours and be you know up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and uh, you know surrounded by the the redwoods, which I've decided are my spirit animal. Okay, and you know, and I do that most Saturday mornings with you know a couple of uh, of really good friends, and that's just my way to decompress and put my life in context and have some fun. So we we hint, touched on this earlier. If if a millennial uh, or a recent college grad came up to you and said, "Hey, I'm thinking about going into fill in the blank technology, venture investing, etc." What sort of advice would you give them? Uh, number one, surround yourself with the best people that you can. And by the way, that doesn't mean the most famous people mm-hmm. or the people that other people think are great. Right? Your value system, your lens, uh, because that's the only way that your lens will get better over time is to focus on, on on that. The second is work on things that you find interesting because you're never going to be great at something that you don't love. It just takes too much time and energy. And then the third thing I just layer back in is, uh, and, and by the way, I was talking to a young woman at an event that we held last night on uh, diversity in, in tech called Seat at the Table. And the life is long, be on a journey, learn. Uh, I, I like that philosophy. And our final question, what is it that you know about venture investing today that you wish you knew 20 years ago when you were first starting? So I will point out that the thing that I was taught very early on that's foundational is people, people, people. And you know that's the, what the, the Sutter Hill orientation. The thing that I didn't fully understand that I wish I knew was platform, platform, platform. Mm -hmm. I I think that's the thing that, again, it takes the 10x opportunity and turns it into the 100x opportunity. And so that is ultimately uh, the the thing that we are most looking for. In these early stage companies, you don't know, but you say, if we're successful, if A and B happen, can the next chapter be this extraordinary platform opportunity? Thank you, Greg. That That's really quite fascinating. Everybody makes fun of me for using that word, but it's fascinating. We have been speaking with Greg Sands of Costa Noa Ventures. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are sold, and you can see any of the other 159 or so such conversations we've had previously. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank my crack staff who helped me put together these podcasts. Medina Parwana is our audio producer and engineer. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. 